Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. Also joining me is a very special guest, someone who, if you caught the first episode of this collaborative podcast series, you would have heard this gentleman's voice actually leading off the podcast. He hosted it the first time around. Now it's my turn. We'll sort of rotate who exactly hosts this podcast, but Stephen Gillespie from the Draft Capital podcast from the Off the Ball Network is joining me on this episode to do our monthly big board comparisons. We both have our 2.0 big boards out. We've both made separate podcasts and or Substack posts going over our respective boards. So again, if you don't listen to Draft Capital, make sure you subscribe to that show wherever you get your podcasts and also go subscribe to Stephen Gillespie's Substack as well. I'll let him do the plug for his Substack, but that's where you're going to be able to find all of his big boards in print, and he does a magnificent job. His his board has far more prospects on it than my board does at this point. I've only gone up to 30. I, I believe by the time we get around to 3.0, I'll extend that out to 45, and then hopefully around tournament time we'll be at a full 60 prospects. And, and you know the drill. This is draft deeper. Eventually, we'll go out to about 90 to 100 guys. But I don't want to bore everyone with my tier six, tier seven thoughts quite yet. And, and matter of fact, I'm not even that far in the evaluation process yet. But Steven, Steven does one hell of a job. I'm thrilled that he's joining me. How are you doing, brother? Oh, man, Nathan, just first off, thank you so much for having me on the show. You know, I'll, I tell you all the time, you know, I'm a fan of you first. And like the fact that you want to talk, you know, basketball with me, I always I'm humbled by that. And thank you so much for that awesome introduction. I don't think I've ever been brought on a show in that, in that strong of a manner before, brother. So thank no, you. Don't, don't don't give me like the chat forward introduction. I, I'm not deserving of that kind of praise. I'm just a man on the Internet. So the, I'm, I, I, if I reach that level, then I will happily take take a, a counter intro like that but not not quite yet my friend but i'm i'm happy to have you on as always you and i have great chemistry as co-hosts so i'm excited to do this show we're, we're we're gonna run it similar to how we did last time so steven kind of made an outline for us and he asked specific questions about prospects that maybe each of us were at a different point on our boards on we didn't sit here and run through all 30 prospects on our respective top 30s. I, I think there's there's definitely a better way to do this. And, and I like the outline approach that we took last time. I like the approach that I'm taking this time as well. So I picked out six guys that I have here that I'm a little higher on or Steven's a little higher on. So I'm really excited to run through some of these names Steven, without further ado, I mean, let's not waste any time. You ready to hop in? Yes, sir, man. Let's do it. I'm ready to go. So let's kick it off with two guys. We'll, we'll start first with Benedict Mather, and then we'll we'll pivot into Johnny Davis, two prospects who, if you've heard my episode earlier this week with Matt Babcock, you know that I did ask him about a few of these guys. So we'll lead off with Benedict Matherin, who on the basketball news board, he was actually the fifth-ranked prospect. He's also number five on Steven's board, and he's number eight on my board. I, I think it's 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 pretty widely accepted that Matherin's a top 10, top 12 prospect on the majority of boards at this point. He's in the 92nd percentile in terms of total offense, 55th in total defense, 79th on cuts, 67th in transition scoring, 
64th in pick and roll scoring, 65th off screens, 53rd off spot ups, 79th on jump shots overall, 95th percentile finishing around the basket, 64th on catch and shoot looks, and 65th percentile off jump shots off the dribble, averaging 18.9 points per game on almost 51% from the field, 39% from three point range, and 79% from the line. Steven, that is quite a healthy, diverse, and efficient shot profile for Mr. Matherin. Somebody who, as I've talked about on previous podcasts, both with Matt and even going back to some of the pods I've already done with Mr. Tyler Rucker, a.k.a. Backcourt Violation. When you looked at his valuation last year, he was a really good cutter last year. He was awesome finishing off of straight line drives to the basket. He was that type of athlete. Last year, you could see him pop off camera as he's running the floor in transition, looking for those vertical finishes at the basket. And he was able to hit open three-point shots last year, but he wasn't much of a creator off the bounce. We didn't really see any of the, the passing creativity that we're seeing this year. He's taken his offensive game overall to another level. And then when you factor in how efficient he's been out of pick and roll, it's it obviously when you get to the NBA, you want to be able to score out of pick and roll and, and facilitate out of pick and roll as well. You want to be able to hit open spot up shots. You want to be effective from the corners, spacing the floor for everybody else. You want to be able to score up and down in transition. He excels in all of those play types. And the fact that he's doing more damage on the ball as a lead guy, the clear lead offensive option for this team, as well as everything that he brings to the table off the ball like he did last year. He's just become so much more of a complete offensive player. And I'm not as high on him at this moment in time as you are, Stephen, but I'm assuming that's the, these are a lot of the reasons why you're high on him. Why has he hit five on your big board this time around? Well, I want to first start off by saying, Nathan, that I think that, and not you, right? But I think that he's kind of fading a little bit on how people are evaluating him because he has had the, you know, not have the benefit of playing recently, right? His last game was on, you know, the third of this month. So that's about a week and a half of him not playing. Meanwhile, you have guys like Johnny Davis setting the world on fire and, and, and looking like a legit superstar. More to come on him later, right? But Matherin playing this season for Arizona, one of the things that that I had questions on was his shot creation for himself and others. And look, his assist percentage isn't very high. He's only got an 11 assist percentage, but he's he's not really asked to be a creator for others. But I have been pleasantly surprised with the opportunities in the in the moments where he has had a chance to share the ball. He's actually looked very well doing that. And also the creation off the dribble. That's one of the areas that I really wanted to hone in on. I came into the season wanting to, I won't say not like him, but I came in with a, I wasn't as high on him mentality. And he has just proved himself to me. And that's why I'm, I have him where I do right now on my 2.0. I have him fifth. He's proved himself to me. You know, he he looks very, very comfortable off the ball this season with the rock in his hand. He looks even more comfortable. And that's something that talent evaluators such as you and myself, we want. We want guys who can hurt you in a multitude of ways. He's one of those three-level scorers that everybody is always so high on. He's efficient on the inside. He's efficient on the outside and in the in-between. Defensively, he doesn't let off much there either. He grades out in the 55th percentile overall on synergy, and it shows on film too. So when you have a guy who you can plug in in a multitude of areas, 
Um, probably never going to be the guy that is going to be a point of attack, you know, um, defender or really a guy who's going to run the offense for you. He's very versatile, very complimentary, and that always translates well to the NBA. And in our recent mock draft that we did over at Off the Ball Network um, for Draft Capital, I drafted him fourth overall. And I think that that's where the draft is going to be fun this year because depending on who is there, I had Orlando. I took him fourth overall. Now, if you look at the composition of their roster, right, they have two young centers in Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter. They have a, a guy who can give you really good minutes in, in in Wagner at the four. And then they have two guards in Cole Anthony and Jalen Suggs who you still want to let those guys develop. You don't want to take developmental time away from them. Benedict Matherin plugs in very nicely in a system like that where he can complement those guys well. He doesn't have to be the, the creator on that team because they have guys that can do that already at the one, two, even the four with Wagner. But if you wanted to give him minutes um, – being an initiator of sorts against second units, I believe that he can develop his way into a position like that. I'm really high on Matherin right now. Obviously, I'll give the disclaimer that things can change as the season progresses, and there's guys knocking on his door for me right now. But I think he's done enough, you know, in the first couple months of the season to be in a top five. So he's, I don't think he's done fully rising on my board. I think that I do have some reservations about other players who I had higher this time around, such as Kendall Brown at Baylor, although I still really like his game a lot. He's just not showing that that takeover type of ability that you want to see from a prospect mm -hmm. You're taking them in the top five or the top six. Obviously, Jalen Duran has been a mixed bag of sorts in his own evaluation this year. He He's definitely been up and down, but you still have to buy into some of his physical tools and his overall upside. But... I guess that begs me to ask you the question, Stephen, do you believe that Matherin has star upside of his own? Because if you're going to take him in the top five or even within the top four, as you said that you did on, on a mock draft that, that you guys over at the network did, then you have to believe he has that star level upside, maybe not like your top overall scoring option, but certainly as a, a secondary guy or even your third option on a really good team. At least that's my own personal draft philosophy is that at this point of the draft, I would still be trying to go star hunting as much as possible. Or maybe, Stephen, do you, do you not necessarily buy the star power of other guys that you have lower than him? And you're kind of saying, if I could get a higher end complimentary piece, to bring in who I know what I'm getting from them night after night. Maybe that is good enough for me to spend a top five pick on. Yeah. And again, just to kind of beckon back to what I said earlier, you know, I drafted him fourth overall, but he wasn't the guy. And again, you know, it's been a couple weeks since I've done my two auto. I play with my board all the time, Nathan, I'm sure you're the same way. <laughs> I have a, I have a couple guys that have kind of passed him at five, but again, it's going to come down to fit and, this is where people can get into a heated discussion of, you know, why, why do you have a big board if you're not going to draft in the order that you have it? Well, it really all depends, right? Like the lottery's got to shake out. That's where I think people's big boards are really going to start to, you know, firm up. But I don't think that he's the most talented player individually at four. But that's not to say that he couldn't progress even further. I mean, you got guys like a, a Bradley Bill, right, when he came out of Florida. He, he was 
he was billed as like the ultimate complimentary player, but we didn't really see much of him as a as a primary creator. Well, the roles changed over there for the district, and John Wall moved out. Bradley Beal had to do more um, that season, and even in the seasons prior due to John Wall's injury, and lo and behold, he can do a little bit more creation, right? Like Arizona has a lot of talent, and I know Kentucky kind of gets uh, the players that they get kind of get a benefit of the doubt because they have to sacrifice for the greater role of that team. Not saying that Benedict Matherin has like, you know, Kyrie Irving level handle or anything like that, but maybe there could be a little bit more to his game based on the talent that is around him. And again, coming into the NBA, his first couple seasons, I don't think that that's going to be asked of him, but that doesn't mean that that can't develop in years to come. So I guess in a, in a roundabout way of answering your question, I do think that he could, end up being like a maybe a second or a third best player depending on a a lot of factors but I think truly if everything hits he can turn into a second or third best option on a team probably just not like a de facto number one so I would I would tend to agree with you which is why I think his range on my board is going to be anywhere from like six to eight um, on, on his best days, he's really reminded me of, and I've said this on other shows too, of Andrew Wiggins. Mm-hmm. And it, it really depends on how you would define Andrew Wiggins, because if you look at his numbers to the, the, the type of player that he's become now on Golden State, you might classify him as a star. Maybe you wouldn't, but I think that's really where the def- your definition of star, I think, is going to define where you would draft somebody like Matherin. But if, if Matherin does hit... And he is that type of player where he's able to kind of pick and choose his spots within the offense. You can rely on him to hit a certain amount of shots. You're not asking him to create too much. But even Wiggins, he's playing a much more complimentary role when he's Mm -hmm. with the starters. But when he does get to play with some of those second unit guys for Golden State, he does get his chance to to flash a little more of his, his creativity off the bounce. And maybe as you talked about, Steven, maybe that is something that Matherin could grow into. Maybe he is more of a featured option with second units. And if he's able to to play on a good team with one or two other guys in the starting lineup who you trust to have more responsibility on their shoulders than Matherin, maybe he kind of gets to, to fit in like he has for Arizona this year where yes, he's been the top dog more often than not. You can tell by the scoring outputs that he's had, especially in some big games, but he also has a ton of talent around him. He's without a doubt playing with other NBA level players. It's not like he's the only guy on his team who can do something offensively and that's it. So teams can't exactly game plan against this Benedict Matherin as they could some other teams, some other players who are playing on worse teams, like a, like a Bryce McGowan, for example, it's not the same conversation. So, I'm really curious to see how he continues to develop, but it's interesting. He he hasn't risen up draft boards in the same way as like Johnny Davis, for example. Johnny Davis came completely out of nowhere, emerging as like a top seven type of prospect. But I think Matherin has gone through a, a meteoric rise of his own. At least in my personal opinion. Now, there are some other people who would have rated him as a lottery prospect last year. I had not seen quite enough to have him inside of a top 20. I would have taken him as like a late first round pick. But even rising like the 25 to 30 range all the way up to like anywhere from from five to eight, that's still a significant 
rise of draft boards. And you and I both think that it has been warranted up to this point. I'm pretty confident that his stock is going to remain where it is. I just didn't get quite as high as you did on our second edition of our big board. But at the same time, it is only big board 2.0. And I can't wait to get into the next edition of my board where I think I'm going to have a lot better of an understanding on these guys and be able to project out translatable skills, what I believe their role is going to be when they first get into the league and, and how they can progress further from there, sort of look at more of their developmental art to the point where I can actually tier them. And to your point, Stephen, when, when you're able to not necessarily worry about the number on your board next to a prospect, but really where they're at within a certain tier, and you mm-hmm. can kind of match where you're at in the draft to the tier prospect that you're looking for, and you're able to sort of find the best player for your specific team within that tier, I think making these projections, making these boards becomes a lot easier overall. But let's move into the next prospect that we wanted to talk about. As I said, Johnny Davis, by by the time my audience is listening to this podcast, by the time your audience is listening to this podcast, they may or may not have heard a show (laughs) that that was also coming out for me this week that I did with some no-sealed cohorts, um, Tyler and Nick. We talked about Johnny Davis on the, the aptly titled Johnny Davis episode. Um, and, and I was really excited to do that. I wanted to make this Johnny Davis week over here at Draft Deeper because I hadn't really talked about him too much in depth. I've wanted to see kind of how this arc for him would play out if he could keep up this pace of playing well, especially in these big games against better teams in the Big Ten. And Stephen, he keeps laying waste to everyone in front of him. And you you and I have both seen some of the statistical splits on Twitter that people are talking about. He plays significantly better against better competition. It's not just Mm -hmm. a slight uptick in his numbers. Matter of fact, you look, as I alluded to on the previous episode with those guys, his two quote-unquote stinker games this year are against Green Bay and Illinois State. But when he's had to play teams like Texas A&M, Houston, Georgia Tech, Ohio State, Purdue, Iowa, Maryland. I mean, he is balling out. He's scoring 20-plus points per game, and he's doing it with such a mature approach. He gets inside the arc. He takes his angles offensively. He gets he picks and chooses his spots very well. He rises up. He utilizes his mid-range craft. He can get to the basket. He's not the highest level of finisher once he gets to the basket, but I think some of that's going to improve as he continues to get older in the NBA. And then he kind of uses his threat of what he's able to do off the bounce, how he operates out of pick and roll. He uses that to set up his outside attack. He's, he's one of these guards – it seems like we're always focused on these guards nowadays who operate outside in. He's unique in that he operates inside out. And I think it's a very mature approach to, to how he crafts his offensive game. And it's something that is very unique. You don't see it as much anymore. And I think it's going to serve him really well in the NBA. This is somebody who has drastically, as I said before, risen up my board. You have him at number 11. When you did this, and again, you, you you did mention that your board's constantly changing. It's constantly fluctuating. I All ranked him at seven. I ranked him at seven. I said that if I had to redo the board today, he would probably be at that number five spot, legitimately challenging Jane Ivey as the best guard in the draft. And I pitched it to the guys. I said, similar to what I wrote on the Substack this week, my column, Morning Dunk for No Ceilings, I said, why is this guy – 
not only challenging Jay Nivey to be the best guard in the draft, but why is he not challenging that top three, that upper echelon of prospects that everybody's kind of dubbed as the, you know, the golden children of this draft, so the, the Paolo Bancaro, the Jabari Smith, and the Chet Holmgren, because Johnny Davis has been that damn good. I think mm-hmm. he's going to continue to be that good, and he has that quality to him, Stephen. I'll be curious to get your take on this, as I was able to ask the, the other guys last night. He has that quality to his game where everybody on his team, regardless of how good they are offensively, regardless of how they're performing, they can get an immediate confidence boost because they can look over and they can point to Johnny and they say, we have a chance to win this game because we have that guy. He is the guy. He is the number one option. He consistently delivers night in and night out, even when he's not shooting effectively from the field in a particular game. He's still making the right decisions with the ball in his hands. He's keeping it moving. And then defensively, he's giving everything he has, generally guarding the other team's best player, the other team's second best player. The load that he carries on his shoulders and the fact that he's excelled with how much has been on his shoulders exemplifies leading by action. It exemplifies his character, his maturity overall. It just doesn't seem like there's another player in this draft class who has those qualities to me. They're qualities that matter if I'm choosing very high in the draft. It's the biggest reason why I had Cole Anthony number one in 2020 over some other very talented prospects in that class who up to this point have outclassed them, although Cole's slowly starting to close the gap. But guys like LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards, as as tremendously talented as they are, I didn't know if they exuded the same qualities of leadership that somebody like Cole Anthony did and and he uh, albeit or the Orlando Magic aren't winning a lot of games but you can just tell the culture is completely different in that locker room and that environment when he's playing games and he's on the floor and I see a lot of the same stuff from Johnny Davis and you read some of these pieces that have come out especially some of these journalists are starting to to write and tell more of Johnny's story and then how he's gotten to this point I just love everything I'm seeing about him, man. So I don't know. I don't know where you're currently at. I don't know if he would currently be 11th on your board if you had to redo it today. But why don't? Why don't you take this time to get up on the podium, Steve, and give my audience as well as myself all of your Johnny Davis thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, first off, he's absolutely come up on my board even more. You know, like I said, this my 2.0 came out like roughly 12, 13 days ago. And yeah, he's right now sitting within my top five, kind of spoiler alert here, the direction I'm going in my 3.0. Because of a lot of what you said, how about this, Nathan? He's given you almost a 34% usage percentage and less than a 10% turnover percentage. That's insane. Yeah. His his assist percentage is a little over 19. But I mean, he, he might be up there in what I would call would-be assist leaders in college basketball if the rest of his team was about league average at every position the right? second best offensive player on that team is brad davison who i joked about last night i feel like he's been in college for as long as i've been out of college and spoiler alert that's quite a number of years so like that that he, he's not playing with even a good offensive team so i would 100 percent agree that the, the would-be assist leaders i think metcalf even said that it seems like Cade cunningham-esque if you want to talk about his passing for sure. And I mean, the passing is solid. I mean, you look at his assist totals right now, he's giving you what almost three assists per game. You kind of prorate that out. 
I think at the next level, if if he's got a similar usage percentage, that would be kind of hard to to believe though, a 34% usage percentage at the next level, but it's not out of the question right now either. Maybe you're looking at like five, six assists per game at a guy like this. And Nathan, one of the funny things that I keep seeing is that he doesn't really have like, he's not a very athletic player, but I've seen several plays, uh, particularly that Purdue game where he, he showed out and, you know, he blocked Travion Williams, albeit I don't know if Williams knew what he was doing in midair whenever he took flight. He kind of gave you that up and under layup and allowed Davis to load up. But there were other times during that game where he was able to, you know, time his jump with the shot and, and reject it. And I love the defensive effort that he brings too. His offense is so pretty to watch. I mean, a lot of people are comparing him to Devin Booker. He gives me Brandon Roy vibes. I mean, because he'll he'll back a player down. He's not really the tallest guard out there, but I mean, at about 6'5", he's not the shortest either. You know, he has that functional, uh, you know, physical dimensions to his game where he feels comfortable putting his back to the basket and backing up a smaller guard. He can take, you know, kind of bigger, slower forwards off of the dribble. I remember one play against Purdue where he, you know, being a right-handed player, took the ball to his left, came off of a screen, went right at Zach Eady, stopped on a dime, pulled up, and just nailed the shot while other defenders were kind of hedging towards him as well. He was completely unfazed and and nailed the shot. And I was I that play kind of cemented like, okay, this dude has a lot of stuff to his game to kind of put it at a uh, very elementary level of explaining how I view him. But I mean, 20, 22 points per game on almost 18 attempts. He rebounds extremely well, even offensively. I'm I'm a big fan of him, man. I mean, again, defensively per synergy overall, his defensive percentile grades out in the 74th percentage. That's outstanding, and what he's able to do on the Go yeah. Ahead. How many? I was just gonna say, how many guys that we're talking about in this upper tier have, as I said, that much responsibility on their shoulders, and they're still rating out in the 74th percentile in both total offense and total defense. It, it is it is absolutely remarkable what he's doing. Yeah, the next closest one that we're going to be talking about in terms of defensive percentile, the only one that grades out ahead of him is a a guy that doesn't really give you much on the offensive end right now because he's so raw. But, you know, another guard that we're going to be talking about later grades out similarly offensively, but defensively because of his height and his position, right? He's not expected to do that much. Meanwhile, Johnny Davis is giving this Wisconsin team everything on both ends of the ball. You can tell that he's a leader. That speaks volumes to me. I was a big Jalen Suggs guy last season. Johnny Davis has given me a lot of those vibes. I love guards with good intangibles and good leadership qualities. I was a big Tyrese Halliburton guy the, the season prior. He's kind of following that similar mold. He's climbing right up my boards. And Nathan, one of the things that you spoke to uh, as far as you know, challenging for a top spot, I was actually talking to Tyler Rucker on backcourt violation. He was kind enough to let me on his show. And there's a couple prospects that I just feel like it's almost rude to start talking about the top three, you know, and Jabari Smith, Paula Boncaro, and Chet Holmgren about moving those guys down this early. It just seems rude. But I'm giving them kind of a two weeks notice, man, because like once 3.0 hits, preseason expectations are kind of, I'm severing and walking away from those. And what I see on the court is what I'm going to call away. And my top five might start looking drastically different with guys like Johnny Davis playing the way that he is. So the one the one number I didn't really touch on too much with the other guys was 
how he rates out in terms of isolation scoring. Um, he, he's only in, I believe it's the 24th percentile on isolations as, as well as on cuts, but particularly when we talk about isolation scoring, when he has somebody on an island and he's looking to score one-on-one, it's not quite the same right now at Wisconsin. This, this team does not space the court very well. They do not shoot the three very well. Matter of fact, I, I don't remember the specific percentage, but Nick actually gave great stats to how this team's handling the offensive side of the ball with Johnny Davis is off the floor and the shooting percentages were putrid enough. They were even more putrid from three point range. So it's one thing that I keep coming back to, and I'm curious to get uh, your comment on this, Stephen. when I'm going back and I'm watching some of these rookies or sophomores in the NBA, and I'm seeing such rapid development from them. Mm -hmm. It's generally in their one-on-one creation ability and then being able to hit shots that we weren't quite confident they would be able to hit once they got into the NBA because it didn't always look as pretty at the college level. They, they looked a little slow. Um, they, they weren't quite rising up as high. Things didn't look as easy for them. And even, and I know this player's taller and he's bigger, but even for somebody like Franz Wagner last year in Michigan, we thought that maybe he would have some of that upside as a one-on-one shot creator. It just didn't look always pretty. At Michigan, but Michigan was another team last year who they didn't have the best spacing. He right. played in a lot of big games without his best floor spacer uh, in Livers. Um, now he gets to the NBA where Orlando's not even setting the world on fire from three-point range as a collective unit, but playing with much more reliable shooters who defenders have to respect, especially in the corners, you see what Franz is able to do on a space floor and it just, it just looks completely different. And I'm sure if I went back to a a number of different prospects that I've kind of had similar questions about in in doing this pre-draft process, I would come to the same conclusion that it's amazing what happens with some of these guys when they get on an NBA court that is spaced so much better. I just think Johnny Davis is going to be able to thrive even more in those one-on-one situations, despite not being that top shelf athlete, he still has good positional size He's strong, he's tough, and he has that crowd. He just knows how to get to his spots regardless of what defenders do to him. And with even more space to operate in, I can absolutely see those one-on-one scoring numbers going up. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at other players um, who have been in a similar situation, a lot of them have talent. I mean, another guy that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, if I can spoil him, Tati Washington, he has a guy who in in Shibwe, who can hit mid-range shots at least coming off of a pick and roll. Johnny Davis really doesn't have that. I mean, he has capable, he has a few guys who can hit, right? But no one who consistently can work a pick and roll for him. And because of that, Johnny Davis also leads the league, I think, in screens rejected because of how he has to kind of navigate around screens to create shots for himself and more effectively for others. He's the, the spacing aspect is everything to me when it comes to Johnny Davis. And even though the spacing isn't necessarily there, he's still shooting almost 50% on his two-point attempts, and he shoots 13 of those a game. That's insane. A lot of them are post-up. A lot of them are nav- navigating around the screen and stopping on a dime and rising up against somebody. He, Even though that the spacing isn't ideal, he knows how to navigate in a, in a very congested ecosystem and capitalize on those situations it's so much fun to watch and even though he's not the most explosive athlete 
He has wiggle to his game. He can elevate very well on his jump shot. And again, back to the defense, he knows how to, he he gives it everything on that end too. And he's still giving you a 34% usage percentage on offense. That's everything to me. And I just, I can't, I can't say enough good things about Johnny Davis and how much I value him as a prospect already right now. And again, moving forward, I might start looking at moving him into my top three because his, his game is undeniable. Now, the only thing that I think that you touched on with Franz Wagner that Davis doesn't have is that unique height perspective, right? Like another guy yeah. in our class that we're going to talk about Harrison Ingram. How many times do we see guys like even a Josh Giddy from last draft cycle, right? Didn't really light the NBL on fire, but we see that his height gives him unique perspectives and a height of eye that where he can come away with passes and be a little bit more risky, like what we're seeing with him doing in Oklahoma City. Davis doesn't have like that unique next level height. At 6'5", he's going to be surrounded like built players at his position or even taller at the next level. So that's one thing to just to kind of be in consideration of as well, I guess, when you're looking at his ultimate high-end outcome. No, and that's kind of what we talked about uh, on on the previous podcast when we focused on Davis as well, is that he doesn't have the unique physical gifts that some of these other guys have in the top three. But at the same time, he has a game that is absolutely tailor-made to step into the NBA and score points. The most important point about winning a basketball game is putting right. the ball in the bucket. He does that at such a high level. He is composed. He's sure of himself, and he just wants it. He is a dog. He will not stop until he becomes the best version of himself. And again, those players setting a tone in a locker room, that means a ton to winning basketball games at a high level. It's not, it's not always about the talent when it comes to going down that star path in the NBA. Talent is an important part of the equation, but it's only one part of the equation. You also have you also have to have the drive, the willingness, the motor, the work ethic. You have to have all of those things. And Johnny Davis, I haven't gotten to, to talk to him personally. I would absolutely love to talk to him personally. But you right. can just tell everything that's coming out about him off the court. You can just tell watching the film on the court. He is that type of player, without a doubt, no question. And I agree with you. He's, he's going to look to move up even more for me because that's the type of player that I tend to gravitate towards when I'm evaluating for the draft. I like to factor in any of those intangible qualities as often as I can. And I will not stop talking about things like that on this podcast because they do 100% matter. So I'm glad that you and I are both on the Johnny Davis bandwagon. I didn't even realize this, Steve, when I was making a little bit of an outline for the show is that we're, we're kind of doing this, this your turn, my turn type of <laughs> type of segment here. And that you're trying to, you're trying to sell me on a guy. I'm trying to sell you on a guy, maybe a little bit. We both kind of sold each other on Johnny Davis. You got to sell me a little bit though on, on Tari Eason, similar, not, not as similar to with Matherin because I can absolutely see the points that you wanted to make about Matherin. Um, Tari Eason, though, being within your lottery, yeah. I haven't gotten there. I don't know if I'm going to get there. I have him at 19 right now. You actually have him at 13 on your 2.0 board. I don't know how much that would necessarily fluctuate today. Listen, he is, for, for, for what he is, he is an efficient player on both sides of the ball. He is a steal and a block machine, yep. as Chuck talked about on a podcast that I did with him. I wanted to have 
Chuck on because whenever I have questions about a guy, he's one of those one of those talented individuals who I love to have on a podcast and actually just talk it out. I don't, I don't, I don't just want to hit him up in the DMs. I want to talk it out mm-hmm. over a podcast, and I want to do a little bit of the same with you. My reservations with taking someone like Tari definitively in the lottery. And and again, maybe depending on the performances of some other prospects in this class, maybe when we talk about projections and actually tearing out these players, maybe he would technically high, rise a little bit higher for me. I don't know if I'm going to get there though, because when you look to take a player like Tari in the lottery, someone who is physically gifted, who is strong, who looks to utilize his size and his strength whenever he possibly can to win a matchup. But if that's generally the majority of what he's known for, We've seen those types of players flame out a little bit in the NBA. When I watch Tari offensively, it seems like he, he's hitting a high percentage of his shots inside the arc, but he's also pretty much doing his damage in transition when he's completely open at the basket in transition to be able to finish, or he's finishing at the basket over players that are clearly smaller than him or are not as athletic than him. When he goes up against players with similar size and athletic tools or even better than his, he struggles. And and sometimes he even struggles mightily. And he's not a skilled finisher around the basket. I think he has decent touch. Mm -hmm. And Chuck even pointed out as well, him him being a 79% foul shooter, that definitely is a, a, a sign of touch that he has it. But he doesn't seem like a very skilled offensive player to me from a finishing or a shooting perspective. We know from the numbers he struggles to hit jumpers from the perimeter. But at the same time, he is a very smart player. You yep. can tell he has a high basketball IQ. He He's a very underrated passer in this class. He's in the 99th percentile in terms of pick and rolls, including passes. That's absolutely awesome. Um, he is a timely cutter to the basket. He makes things happen with or without the basketball in his hands. And then when you factor in how disruptive he is defensively, I had a comparison for him on my podcast with Chuck. They gave me a lot of James Johnson type of vibes. And I ran through a lot of the numbers in comparison to where they were both sophomores, um, both six foot eight forwards coming into the draft. They were very, very, very similar from a numbers perspective. And, if that's the type of player that Tari can be in the league for 10 plus years, that's going to sell him inside the top 20 for me because in James Johnson's respective draft class at a different time, different year, but he was drafted 16th overall. So if we're talking about taking Tari Eason in a similar range, that's really how you're getting me on board because he has an apt comparison in, in, in some interesting ways, he even differs a little bit from that comparison, but it's such an apt one that inside the top 20, I can get behind it. I just don't know if I'm drafting a player within the lottery who I have legitimate offensive questions about. You clearly see, you clearly feel differently. Maybe you aren't as concerned about some of the things I brought up, Stephen. Why, why should I buy potentially moving Tari Eason into the lottery. Give me the, the Corey Tullivus, sell me this pen segment on Tari Eason. Well, I'll do my best. Corey is far better at it than I am, right? That's why he's on the Draft Act pod. Um, I did listen to your to your episode with Chuck, and much like you, I respect everything that that man says. He has a, a very beautiful way of explaining what he's seeing on the floor. I'm not as articulate, but I'll do my best here. So 
Tari Eason first jumped out to me simply due to his strength. And we know at the position that he's probably going to play um, somewhere between a, a, a four, maybe a small ball five at spurts and some of these bigger lineups, you know, if he's in a system where like Cleveland, for example, is, is toting, you know, three, seven footers. I don't think it's out of the question that we might see Tori Eason maybe play out on the perimeter a little bit. I think that the strength helps him out a lot, especially at the next level defensively. You know, he's about six, eight. He's listed at about two sixteen. He might be a little bit bigger than that. If not, that's a very strong, sturdy sound two sixteen. I think that defensively, in a in a system where he's not going to ask to be in what your guy Tyler Metcalf likes to call a feast or famine style defense, which I believe is what LSU is implementing down there because he and his teammate Alex Fudge, they're just greyhounds on that end. They love to jump passing lanes, and I think that that's kind of the uh, the focal point on the on the defensive side of the ball. They want to turn defense into offense as quickly they, as they, they can. They do take smart gambles, though, and that was one of the points that Chuck did make on my podcast was that Tari does gamble a lot, but they're mm-hmm. generally smart plays. He doesn't take any risky gambles like like Zion Williamson, for example, was, in my opinion, one of the better defensive playmakers in his draft class because of what he did in college. But there were plenty of times where he also took a lot of boneheaded gambles on yep. top of the ones that he should have taken. You don't see those boneheaded gambles from Tari. So to his credit, he does pick and choose his spots really well playing those passing roles. And he has an innate ability to, I don't know who I'm supposed to give credit for this terminology, but I heard it somewhere and I love it. You know, the mugging steals. He is so good at that. I mean, anytime that a, that an offensive player wants to attack the basket, they need to have one eye on Torrey Eason because he will rip it right out of their hands. And usually that turns into an easy two. That's a very important skill to have at the next level, Nathan, in my opinion. You know, when you couple that strength, with the the IQ defensively that he has, and when you know and you know that whenever he does come away with the play like that, it's going to result in an easy bucket. You touched on his playmaking ability; it's vastly underrated in my opinion. And LSU, he, they run the floor very well, and he's usually the guy that's leading the charge on that end. He's very adept at changing his body and using his body to kind of shield the defender away from him, to where if he's not dunking it you know, which is a lot of the time, right? He can finish with finesse, um, usually with his right hand. I have seen a couple plays where he he is capable of coming off of his left, but he's so strong that he can kind of get away with whatever he wants right now at this level. I do understand the reservations that anybody has with him offensively. I mean, there's really no way that I can make 27% from deep sound like a, like a plus thing at the next level, right? He's only shooting about two per game. But you can, like Chuck mentioned, you can look at that free throw percentage and see that there are indicators that if he lands on a team like, look at Toronto. Toronto is not a 14th worst team on paper in the NBA, but for whatever reason, I think it might be strategic tanking. They are falling in position where they can land a top 12, top 10 pick. If you have a developmental staff like the Toronto Raptors, like the Oklahoma City Thunder or the Miami Heat, wherever wherever he goes, you have to look at a guy like Tori Eason and say, I'm getting a very strong, very well-built forward who can play almost any front court position that I want. He can pass. He runs well. He has good body positioning. If you're telling me that the only thing that I need to do for a Tori Eason is to fix his shot, which there are indicators that you can, 
sign me up for that undertaking because if you have Tory Eason's defense, playmaking, intelligence, and strength, and you add a shot, just a functional league average shot, that's a dangerous player to have. That's why I'm high on him. And I do believe that at the next level, he, he is also a very tough worker from all reports and everything that I've read. He's a guy that you want on your team. And he does all this coming off the bench, by the way. So, I mean, that speaks volumes to me, at least of his character, where as a sophomore transfer coming in from Cincinnati, that, you know, he could come into LSU and humble himself enough to play make off the bench the way that he is. Coming into the next level, I don't doubt his work ethic. I don't doubt his character. I think that he will put in the effort to get in that shot. And coupling a league average shot with everything else, sign me up for that project, Nathan. I just don't, Steven, I, I don't know how strong he truly is. And what I mean by that is that you, you perfectly described and outlined his defensive approach and his technique and how he plays on that end of the floor. But it's almost always when he's making his best plays, it's against guys who are clearly smaller than him. It's against twos and it's against ones, and it's against some threes. And it leads me to think that his best position in the NBA may very well be as a three and a perimeter-oriented defender who's causing chaos, switching one through three. Maybe he's sliding up a little bit to the four based on the matchup. I just don't see him doing enough damage on the interior defensively to hold up to the point where yeah, a, a lot of people want to project him as that four man who can even masquerade as a small ball five. Mm-hmm. Everything that I've seen on the film, I haven't seen enough examples of that on the film that I've watched to get me there, to to point him as as that type of player. And and maybe I do just need to go back and watch more. I mean, I, I've watched, shoot, I've watched like five or six LSU games up to this point. My, my girlfriend yeah. jokes with me. She's like, is all you watch LSU basketball now? And I'm like, yeah, babe, because I kind of have to. Like, this is like... Tari Eason and Alex Fudge, who we'll talk about at the tail end of this podcast, like they took draft Twitter by storm. And it's like, I scroll down my timeline and it's like every other post is something about Tari Eason. So yeah, I kind of have to watch this guy. I'm sorry for my contributions to that, but I, (laughs) I, I I can't help it. Like Nathan, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, man. Like if I'm scouting another player, I look to see if they play LSU so I can also scout Tari Eason and Alex Fudge as well. Um, I, I love watching their film. And again, I you're not I don't disagree with you on your concerns. Like on the defensive end, his position at the four, that's just kind of like I think like the cookie cutter way to look at him. But you know, when you know, I had CJ Marchesani on the latest episode of Draft Capital, and he pointed out, you know, that as a four, you're kind of the sin eater on your team. And shout out to PD Webb for I believe that he was the one that, you know, the innovator of that um that mantra for the four being a sin eater. I mean, it really just depends on the team and the fit, but I think that with everything else that he does, Nathan, and again, I, he's 13th. Now I'm not saying that he can't slide out. It's just looking really unlikely for me. And on our off the ball network mock draft, I drafted him 19th to the Dallas Mavericks. So, you know, even myself and there were two other people drafting with me, obviously, he did fall. He did fall a little bit beneath where where I ultimately ended up taking him. It's just that the guys that I took ahead of him, I also personally had higher on my board. Well, the case for him staying where he's at on your board, rising up my board in that case, 
would be that he is the player that you're describing, Stephen, not the mm-hmm. player that I'm a little hesitant to describe. And when we look back on this draft, we start doing a redraft of sorts and we kind of figure out who are the players who we would want to draft in the lottery who are best suited to play playoff basketball. Because at the end of the day in the NBA, it's about winning at the highest level. Yep. And if Tari Eason is the player that you're describing, that is the lottery type of player because you know that he's somebody who you can trust to play multiple different important roles on the defensive end. He can do enough offensively. And then when you factor in his passing and that the ball generally doesn't stick in his hands, if he doesn't look to create forced opportunities, trying to score through defenses and, and, and hunt for shots that maybe he shouldn't be hunting for. If that's the player that he is, then I would agree with you. I just, I personally can't get there quite yet that he's definitely that guy. I don't know if I'm going to get there, but I will say that this draft class is just so up and down that if there are opportunities for guys to climb into spots that maybe they wouldn't be in in other years prior, it would absolutely be this year. And this is 100% that type of draft where a player like Tari Eason, even though we might have legitimate questions about him. He can rise because he's producing at a high enough level to the point where you can't ignore his production and you can't ignore the type of player that he could one day become in the NBA because it's such a valuable archetype to where the game is going. So I will leave the door open for him, Stephen. I'm just not, I'm just not there yet. That's um, fair. And I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave the door open for other people as well. And kind of like you, you 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 kind of fallen out of love with a few of these guys, right? Not that you're shutting the door on them being able to come back up, but there have been a significant number of players who I previously had ranked on my board, and on my 1.0, I was like, who's Tari Eason? <laughs> you know, and then on 2.0, I have him square in the middle or at the tail end of the lottery. It's really trying to ride the wave of this draft class, I think is the best way that I can put it. And... I don't see a whole heck of a lot of players that I trust wholeheartedly above a Tori Eason. Well, I will say that I know he dropped a little bit on your board from where he was at previously, but your your boy Harrison Ingram, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, Steven, I watched that game yesterday, and, oh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch him again against Washington State. He he did some things in that game where all of a sudden you you start to evaluate some of these players from a playoff lens. Mm-hmm. And you start to piece together, maybe he's not the sexiest prospect, but at the same time, he seems like a trustworthy prospect who plays a position of need during playoff basketball in the NBA. If you give him a few years of developmental time, it's a, you, you wonder, may, maybe am I factoring him in far low? Because I have him in like the late first round on my board. You have him mid first round. Maybe, maybe he does really need to climb for me, and he's somebody who I'm going to enjoy going back and reevaluating, but you had this one of those players where Harrison Ingram is not really necessarily playing on the best, you know, constructed roster or schematically fit team to, to help feature him. And he's still rising above. Absolutely. And, and you, you had to sell me on Tari a little bit. I, I guess I technically have to sell you on Ty Ty Washington because I don't think you got to sell me as hard as what, (laughs) <laughs> I initially thought you were going to need to prior to the previous couple games, but yes, I, I was significantly lower on, on Ty Ty than you were. 
Why, why don't you talk to me about why you were significantly lower? You, you had him at 21 in your 2.0 board. I have him at 12. Yeah, so I think why I was lower on him, I don't know, man. To me, it just feels lazy, but there is so much validity to it. And, and lazy might be too harsh of a term, but it's almost like dismissive of what you're seeing on the court when you just say, oh, well, he plays at Kentucky, so he has all these other unique skills that he's just not able to see. I am, am firmly of the mindset that where I have to see at least maybe 60 to 70% of what this player is in your eyes for me to to agree with you, right? Especially playing with Kentucky. And playing next to Severe Williams just wasn't doing it for me, right? But now, Tai has got the keys to this team, and he is looking exponentially better as the primary playmaker and even in the last in you know his last big game where he set the front you know the the club's record for assists it didn't even feel like he was hogging the ball or it was the tie tie washington show like it felt like everybody else was shining along with him and oh by the way like he was still able to get his shot so when you can couple you know, he's he's a little bit bigger than another guard that I'm high on in a Kennedy Chandler. So he's got, you know, average positional size. He's slippery. He can score. He can pass. The defense isn't terrible. It's not like anything to write home about, but he's not a net negative on that side of the ball. Seeing him as a primary playmaker, it answered a lot of the questions that I had on him and a lot of the doubts. And once you start answering my questions, it starts becoming undeniable to me. So Ty Ty Washington, he you you wanted to talk about his scoring and how you're definitely buying into the type of shots that he's hitting. What shots isn't he hitting, Stephen? By by the numbers, he's in the 75th percentile in terms of total offense, 79th on spot ups, 74th on handoffs, 64th scoring out of pick and roll as the ball handler in half court sets, 91st and 77th percentile when you factor in pick and rolls and isolations, including passes. Yep. 82nd percentile on jumpers, 89th on runners. That was one of the shots that we definitely highlighted before the season coming in. He had the best runner out of any of these quote-unquote point guards in this draft class. 85th around the basket, 90th on catch-and-shoot shots, 70th all, all jump shots off the dribble. He is flashing as complete of a scoring repertoire for a guard efficiently Mm-hmm. as anyone else in this draft class, shooting almost 50% from the field, 40% for three-point range, 76% from the line, 56.7 true shooting percentage is pretty damn good for a six-foot-three guard. Also. Um, he, 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 he does have longer arms to give him credit. I, I don't know exactly what his plus wingspan is, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to be enticing once some of those measurements come out as we get closer to the draft. He has separated himself for me. It's not necessarily because of anything flashy he does with his passing because he's not a flashy passer. He's not a flashy playmaker. He doesn't have the quickest first step. He's not going to be hitting guys at these at these ungodly passing angles. But he's a good passer. He can make all of the right reads. He can, he can make the simple drop-off passes, the pocket passes. He's even shown a little bit of creativity in terms of some of those hitter heads or, or some of those whips to the corner. He just, he doesn't do anything like he's not the Taron Armstrong type of passer, for example, who's going to be whipping it around his back at some odd godly angle where he's not even facing the play, right? Like he's right. not going to be doing anything stupid crazy, but he can do the simple things, which at the end of the day, if he is one of these quote unquote more combo guards, as Sam Bassini alluded to a little bit when he commented on, on, on one of my tweets, 
about Ty Ty where Ty Ty had the 17 assist game, but just because he had that 17 assist two turnover game, that doesn't mean he's going to be a de facto point guard at the next level in the most traditional sense of the word point guard. Maybe he's a combo playing next to a bigger initiator on the perimeter, but even so he can handle passing responsibilities and he's become such a crafty scorer with the ball in his hands to the point where he does enough things good enough on a certain level that I'm slotting him as the best quote unquote point guard prospect in this draft class. I did not have him there before Mm. the season. I had my question marks about him because of some of that, some of that lack of elite athleticism that that you were talking about, Steven, he's not the quickest guy on the floor. He's not the highest leaper out of any of these guys. The matter of fact, the best athlete from that position overall I think is J.D. Davison, maybe Kennedy Chandler's uh, a, a hair quicker than him. Tyrese Hunter and might be in that conversation too. Ty, Tyrese Hunter is in that. Oh, well, I, I think Tyrese Hunter is a 2023 guy. But if you if if you think he's going to declare for 2022, then he's 100 in that in that conversation as as a speedster on the court, nonetheless. But Washington's his again his mature approach to the game how he kind of wants to work inside out versus purely outside in he's not one of those guys who you picture him as this this three-point gunner from the perimeter he only takes 3.33s per game it's not like Mm -hmm. he's at five or six um he he doesn't get to the line effectively that is something that i'd like to see from him he's shooting 76 percent when he gets there but he's only taking 1.3 per game I do want to see some of that improve a little bit. And maybe that's, that's the biggest concern that people can talk about with Ty Ty is that he's not that elite separator off the bounce. He doesn't always get past his man, but at the same time, that's not the the 100% biggest negative that I can find with a player that would derail their stock or their role in the NBA in my mind. Like I know Jared Butler is, Worlds above Ty Ty, in my opinion, as a ball handler. He was the best ball handler, and he had the best handle in last year's draft class by far. Mm -hmm. But he was not the quickest guy off the bounce either. He was undersized, even more so undersized than than Ty Ty, because he he doesn't have the same wingspan that Ty Ty has. He had trouble getting around some guys at times, but he was also smart enough to pick and choose his battles and pull the ball back out and and maybe reset reset the offense or kick the ball to where it needs to go to kind of keep things moving. And I see a lot of that same decision-making ability from Ty Ty. It's why his turnovers are low. He only has 1.8 turnovers per game to 4.8 assists. So he he's averaging better than a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio. But it's that, it's that decision-making overall that gives me confidence in Ty Ty's game to have enough of a role within an, within an NBA offense and excel as a starting caliber guard in the league have i swayed you at all on ty ty washington as you let me kindly ramble on on my own podcast man it's it's not rambling because it's you're throwing out great information and awesome insight man so i i knew that you were high on ty ty and i know that there are a lot of people that i respect i believe you know coach spins over at the box and one is a is a big ty ty guy as well and when when he has an opinion on a player, I, I stop what I'm doing and I listen to it as well. It's just been 
and you've talked about this on your show too, kind of like your, your grouping, right? When you did, I believe when you talked about your last big board on, on your episode where you walked through your players, you had like this clumping of point guards that you didn't yep. necessarily know what to do with, right? Ty Ty was kind of firmly in that conversation for me as well with guys like J.D. Davison. I personally, big Kennedy Chandler guy, he is challenging Kennedy Chandler for if if we're not counting, you know, Jay Nivey obviously as a as a point guard, right? Like that's a whole podcast in of itself is ultimately what position do we believe Jay Nivey is going to end up being at the next level? But even just for the sake of this conversation, throw him out so we don't even got to worry about that, right? Um, Ty Ty Washington challenging Kennedy Chandler for me should speak volumes because I'm a huge Kennedy Chandler fan, and he is he has worked his way up into my board right now. I'm still trying to work out whether or not I would prefer him over a Harrison Ingram because of the the height that Harrison gives you, the potential to be more versatile. Um, but Ty Ty as a passer, it's it's interesting, right? Because he just had 17 assists and that brought up his assist total to just under five per game. Now, also his role and responsibility was a heck of a lot different, as I alluded to earlier. So if you look at his assist percentage, it's 24% assist percentage. That's awesome, right? He's not really turning over the ball a lot either, just a hair under 13 turnover percentage. His usage rate is pretty high as well, even though that he's not necessarily the de facto point guard for most of the season. Ty Ty has worked his way up, Nathan. I'm I'm starting to believe in him. He's one of these guys that I'm leaving the door open for to maybe even jump over a guy like Atari Eason because of how valuable a guard creator, especially even a combo guard, right? Like that used to be kind of like a, a nasty word, like a slight and insult where you're not tall enough to be a two, but you don't really feel the the proper role and responsibility of a one. I think Ty Ty fits in that mold perfectly, and he's he's rising, man. I'm I'm a believer. The one thing that just doesn't help him um, is that he doesn't do anything on the court that makes that makes your jaw drop. That right. that's that's not necessarily his style of the game, and then not having those incredible highlight plays like somebody like a Kennedy Chandler can all of a sudden just go from point A to point B. He's there in a split second and he's doing something crazy with the ball. And maybe that's one of those highlights that you see on social media that makes you go, okay, maybe I have this guy a little too low on my board or, or you JD see, Davis. And yeah, you see that dunk from the other night where he just completely pounds the rim and you go, okay, maybe I have JD Davison too low on my board. Ty Ty doesn't give you any of that flair. But I didn't even mention the defense on top of – I didn't mention the defense, at least, on top of all the shot-making that he gives you, on top of the, the the good passing that he gives you from that position on the floor. He also defends his own position pretty dang well. Yeah. And a lot of that is the length that he has. He also has, I wouldn't say amazing footwork on the defensive end, but he has good footwork. He, he sticks with his man. He's competitive. He doesn't back down even when he's switched on to maybe like a two or a three. Even when he has to hold his own in the post, he's strong enough and he, he positions himself well enough to be able to handle somebody bigger than him on the defensive end as well. So it's just him being solid to good to – potentially even being on his way to being great in a few areas when it comes to some of the pull-up shot making and especially his floater game. Yep. That's why I have him where I do, but it's, it's absolutely apt to question him, Steven. I don't blame you for questioning his stock and where you're putting him because yeah, you broke it down perfectly. I have questions. About, <laughs> I have questions about all these point guards. Um, Correct. And, and it's really, it's really to me picking out 
who do I feel is, has starter level upside in the NBA and who do I feel is better suited to be long-term backups in the NBA. So we'll see how much of that changes over time. But let's let's hit quickly on these last two guys that we have picked out here. So Max Christie, you had him at 29 mm-hmm. on your board. I did not have him as part of my top 30. He was one of those guys that has definitely taken a massive fall for me. I'm hoping he starts working his way back up. But he was one of those guys, Stephen, similar to a lot of the qualms that people had about Caleb Houston. Christie is somebody who's billed as a perimeter shooter. He's billed as a movement shooter. He's not necessarily too creative with the ball in his hands, although he has had some nice passing flashes, especially in recent games where he's gotten more opportunity. He's played better out of pick and roll. He has an interesting runner off the bounce when he can get to it. But for someone who is billed as more of that movement type shooter and those shots aren't going in, it's very hard to maintain your stock. And when you sort of play on the court a little bit, like you've lost a little bit of that confidence in your shot, that's really what what knocked him down my board for me. Now, thankfully, this should be an easy sell to to me from you, Stephen, because he has played better of late. And I was able to go back and watch that Nebraska-Michigan State game before we got on the podcast here. You and I were talking about that game a little bit earlier in the day. Now you start to see similar to what he showed early on in in the Butler game, where that really was the only full game of evidence that we had for Christie being like this mid-first-round type of pick to even pushing up in the lottery, where I originally had him more leaning on preseason projections. You see some of that confidence come back. You see him hitting open spot-up shots. You see him not being afraid to take somebody off the bounce, get two feet in the paint, finish a runner. You see some of these things start to emerge, and then you factor in Through the offensive struggles, the one thing that he actually has not struggled with is playing defense to his position. He is maybe not somebody who you want switching and playing all over the floor defensively, but Mm -hmm. guarding his own position, he's pretty dang solid at at doing that, and the numbers would certainly tell you that. Um, He's 60th in total offense, 69th in total defense. He scores on a lot of popular play types. It's just... You want you want him to you want to see him continually doing things, moving with the ball, not necessarily seeing him be just this stationary shooter. You want to see the movement shooting come around to an efficient level. You want to see him attacking with the ball in his hands. You do want to see his finishing around the basket improve. He's only in the 12th percentile in terms of finishing around the basket in the half court. That certainly has to improve. You want to see him get to the line more because he does shoot 80% from the free throw line when he gets there. There are a lot of positive indicators to the point where you can build a case for Max Christie to get back into the top 20. But the reason why I dropped him out of my big board altogether, uh, along with some of the confidence concerns, is that when you do factor that in, Mm -hmm. you wonder if Christie's actually going to enter the draft when we get that far. And I sort of wanted my big board 2.0 to set the scene to maybe bring some guys in and bring some guys out based on how I'm projecting these guys. Are they actually going to be in the 2022 draft? So if we're going off of what Christie's shown before, like the last week, week and a half, that was a legitimate question for me to have. That's why I knocked him out. If he's going to keep playing like this, Steven, then he's got to come back in because if he's going to keep playing like this, then there's no way that he's going to not declare for the 2022 draft. So you had him at 29. 
are some of the things that, that I talked about, Stephen, reasons why he sits where he does in your board. Are you thinking about maybe moving him back up? Where are you at with Christie right now? Yeah, I think it's totally fair, the thought process, process that you have, Nathan, because if you look at my 1.0, I had him a couple spots higher. And it's, again, I'm speaking to 3.0 earlier where I said I'm going to start severing away from my preseason expectations, not wanting to give up on guys too early. I think Max Christie is kind of a, a, a golden example right now of what we're seeing as a guy you don't want to give up on too early because look at where he's playing. You know, Michigan State, they're not they're not going to say, Hey, Max Christie, if you come here, we're gonna give you the keys to this team. No, they they have they're in the business to win championships. He's only got an eighteen percent usage rate. That's not very high. I mean, of all the guys that we're playing, or excuse me, that we were talked about earlier that are playing. Alex Fudge, I think, is probably the only guy that might challenge him for the lowest usage percentage among both of these guys, right? So even though he's billed as like this can't-miss shooting prospect freshman, he's not necessarily being featured, so that's really difficult. We have a number of... You talked about Caleb Houston earlier. Same thing for him at Michigan. He's not going to Michigan to run that team. He's got a role that he's got to fill, maybe show a couple of his insulary playmaking abilities in defense, but really, you got to live and die by the role that you're built at. Max Christie was built as a shooter. It's hard to look good when you're built at that position and your shot's not falling. Even now that he's playing better, he's only averaging about 35% from, from deep on four attempts per game. That's not necessarily the sexiest percentage. But again, you look at his free throw percentage, his indicators there, what he was built to be coming into the preseason. is why I don't necessarily give up on a guy like him right now. Um, on, on his two-point percentage, you know, on those floaters and stuff, you talked about that. Also another indicator that he's got good touch. What really stands out to me about Max Christie is that he plays, even though his role isn't a lot, he plays in a very NBA-ready role where he's going to be coming off of a lot of movement screens, taking a lot of shots off the move, whether that be from deep or the mid-range. In that game against Nebraska that you spoke on earlier, Nathan, he was hitting from all different spots on the floor, you know, from the top of the key, from from the three, the the short corner from from a two, you know, whether or not he had the ball in his hands, putting it on the court for a couple dribbles and pulling up, or just a catch and shoot. He was giving you a little bit of everything that you want from one of these like three level scores. And you talked about him defensively. He profiles as a pretty solid uh, point of attack defender, which is which is a very useful skill um, for a guard who's only about six five. So. He play the ball. He can play off of the ball, but defensively, he can kind of help out your point guard with the defensive responsibility. So, I don't think that it's going to be too hard to sell you at being 29 in the first round in this draft class. I think that he does make a case that he should go a little bit higher based off of the development arc that he that he looks to have. Let's say that maybe some of the outside numbers continue to tick up. Maybe he gets to that. I don't know, the 37, 38% three-point range on a little bit better volume as he's continuing to gain more confidence in his role within the offense and he's taking more shots. But along with that, let's also say the the finishing numbers don't improve and mm -hmm. he's not able to as easily get inside the paint or get to the basket reliably. He's not able to finish reliably when he gets there. If that part of his game doesn't change then would you agree that there's likely a ceiling that may, maybe not, not saying that he has a cap on his ceiling as a player overall, once he gets into the NBA, but do you think that would definitely set a certain cap 
on his ceiling as to how high he could be drafted and, and where he could ultimately end up on draft night. Well, yeah, no doubt. Whenever you have a limitation to your game, you can't help but have at least a little bit of a of a ceiling to where you are in relation to other players, right? Um, ultimately, he could end up just being a standout three-point shooter, and there's a, a very good role for you in the NBA for that. I mean, a lot of players make a lot of money just from being a, a lights-out shooter, even though they can't do anything once they step inside the restricted area, right? Um, you can still draw fouls. You can still get to the to the free throw line just being a shooter and he can come off of you know little pin down screens and hook around on the elbow and, and give you some inside action as well with a player like him with a shooter like him a guy who can run for days there's it you know his limitation for his role on offense is only to that of the to the head coach i think though that as a finisher he's not really the the strongest athlete either you know he's not really the the most you know, he doesn't have the highest vertical jump or anything like that either. So that limits him there as well. But as a shooter, there's always going to be a role for that. But to answer your question, if you can't finish on the inside, there's other guys in this draft class who can. So yeah, I, th I think it's fair to put a, at least a cap on him in that aspect. So the last guy that we're going to talk about, Alex Fudge, there are actual legitimate questions as to what he can handle on the offensive end. However, his defense, you were incredibly correct, you and a number of other people, Stephen, on draft Twitter, to point out this kid's defense and why we should be taking notice of him at LSU, despite all the Tari Eason buzz. He rates out in the 81st percentile in terms of total defense. I'm going to geek out on you a little bit. I'm going to geek out Do it. on my audience. They, they, some people may not understand this reference in the slightest. I'm a big Dragon Ball guy. and. Okay. The latest series, Dragon Ball Super, has the main character, Goku, reaching a level in his fighting style to the point where it's called Ultra Instinct. And the whole point of Ultra Instinct is essentially your body is able to keep up with certain movements and fight in a certain style to where you're not thinking about it. It's just constant, constant movement. And your opponent can't do anything to counter it because you're always able to come up with the counter to the counter. It's, it's, it's instantaneous. It's autonomous movement. That's the type of defense that I see from Alex Fudge. It's like every single thing that he does defensively is completely instinctual. It's like he's not thinking about playing defense. His body is just naturally reacting to what's going on. And that type of defender, Steven, is so rare. It's mm -hmm. why he's getting the Matisse-Steibel type of comparisons. It's not just the numbers. It's also when you watch him play defense, you see the same thing from Matisse-Steibel. He's just so instinctual. To, to, to what he does on the floor defensively. It's like it's like his arm, or he, he's like reacting, he's jumping, his arm's moving, when the normal player would not even be reacting within the same second or two as Matisse is reacting. And you see that same sort of reactionary defense from Fudge. Those types of defenders do not come around very often. They are incredibly unique prospects. Mm -hmm. Now... I don't hate Fudge's shot mechanics offensively. I think he can be something of a shooter in time. He does need to become a more consistent finisher around the basket overall, although he does rate out in the 81st percentile in terms of cuts and the 67th percentile in transition. So when he gets out on the open floor, because he is one of those guys who, who borderlines being a top-shelf athlete, especially in this class, he can finish 
over the defense, which is great because his body composition, he's another one of those guys. He's, he's very raw physically. He's absolutely going to need to fill out and get stronger. But other than completely open finishes at the basket, he's not proven he can do anything else reliably on the offensive end of the floor. He's very, very, very raw. Yet, you do have him as 30 on your big board. And I will openly admit, I also flirted with having him as a first-round prospect. That makes me feel so much better. Despite some of the offensive concerns, I just, Stephen, you do not see, and I don't know if you have any other percentages that might back up his defensive cases. Well, I know Chuck likes to whip out those, those block and those steal percentages, but you just don't see defenders like him come around. And, and you throw this last point in there. Yeah, he only has a 49.8 sure shooting percentage. He's only playing 16 minutes a night. He's averaging less than five points per game, but he still, he still has a 17.8 PER. Yeah. To, to put this in perspective, Max Christie, who we just got done talking about, who we certainly gave glowing reviews to certain parts of his game and how he can continue to improve his stock, he only has a 12.3 PER up to this point. So the fact that Fudge still has a, a better than average player efficiency rating, despite him being this such a negative offensively, that speaks volumes to what he's been able to do on the defensive side of the ball and just flipping on his tape you just flip it on for two minutes and you can understand how special of a defender he could be one day in the NBA. So my question, I guess, to you with Fudge, Stephen, is you have him at 30 right now. Do you see him as somebody who you think is actually going to be in the 2022 draft? Or do you think he is one of these guys that comes back next year and maybe because he took the time to work on a number of things offensively to his game, maybe he's one of these guys next year at this time that's taken such a massive ascent of people's boards? I think it's kind of too early to tell right now who are going to be your returning guy. Like There are some who are kind of more obvious, but Fudge, I think that he has a legitimate case to at least go to the combine, like get one of these early looks and see what what the feedback is while he's there. And I think that he could be a combine monster. Just I think teams will fall in love with his measurables. You you compared him to Matisse Thibel. He's about you know, what three four inches taller. Yeah. Um, with, with a frame that looks like he could support a little bit more weight. Where thank goodness because I think he weighs less than 190 pounds if if memory serves me right. Um, he's a completely freakish defender. Now, what's crazy when you compare him to Matisse Thibel is that when when Thibel was in school, I believe that the defensive scheme while he was in was predominantly his own. Um, LSU does not really do that. Uh, he's he's on his man a lot, and he shoots passing lanes with the best of them. Uh, I, I share this on Twitter all the time. Anytime I watch LSU play, I would hate to be on offense and be trapped by, by Fudge and Eason. It does not look fun at all. It, it makes me nervous. And my anxiety ramps up when I see per, that happen. Per 40 minutes, 5.2 stops for, for Fudge per 40 minutes. That's that's ridiculous. And 11 yeah. rebounds on top of it. Yeah, I mean, and again, just like Eason earlier, how I mentioned, LSU has the luxury of bringing this dog off the bench. Like that... There should be some sort of rule where LSU can't be able to bring those two guys off of the bench while the other team is already starting to get their, you know, their sweat coming in. But Fudge, you you wanted to hear a little bit more about the defensive stats. At the time where I dropped my board, he had a steal and a block percentage of over 5%. That's stupid. That should not, (laughs) that should never happen, but it is. And, and Fudge, he, I gave him 30. I don't think that I'm going to have them necessarily that high because there are other prospects um, coming up 
Um, I can even name drop a couple of them if you like, but who are given a little bit more of a push. But the fact that Fudge already is getting that sort of recognition and consideration is nuts. I came across liking Alex Fudge because I heard of Tori Eason and I scouted him. And then I was listening to the to the broadcast and I was watching Fudge make plays. And they were like, yeah, this young man leads the SEC in, um, you know, disruptions on, on that side, you know, tip passes and all that. And I'm just like, this dude just comes off the bench and he's leading the entire conference in disrupting plays. That That's insane to me. So his activity level on that end, I think, could be considered elite enough to be selected in this year's draft class where, you know, if, if we're paying attention to the to the season following this one, next year should be a really strong draft class from by all accounts that we're reading. So Fudge might look at where he is currently, um, get an early look at the combine and maybe run, you know, some scrimmages, things like that, get some feedback from the scouts. I wouldn't necessarily rule it out that he returns, but I think that it's a strong possibility that he comes out this season. I mean, if this kid figures out how to hit a jump shot, then my God. It's like, over. What, what, <laughs> what, what are we going to be like that? That is the type of long-term starter in the NBA that, that you're looking for. I mean, for, for all the people want to complain, myself included, about Matisse Thibault's lack of an impact offensively, he's still starting and playing very valuable minutes and a valuable role for the 76ers. And he has enough offense around him to the point where they just kind of need – his defensive disruption and his ability to play passing lanes, get blocks and, and force turnovers. That's what they have him in the lineup for. So if fudge is drafted into the right situation with a team who is willing to be patient with him for the first few years. Mm -hmm. And then by year three, hopefully he's built out enough of a game offensively to the point where he's not a complete zero on that end of the floor, but you're able to unleash a more physically mature player who brings everything to the table that he does defensively. He's one of those guys you're obviously drafting for the long term, whether a team is actually willing to be patient with him and they trust their developmental staff to carry out that development of fudge. There are a number of teams in the NBA who we can name who do have great developmental programs like Toronto, Miami, Golden State. You can you can rattle off some of the better teams in the league. Mm -hmm. You let this guy go to a team like that. I mean, they could really be reaping some massive, massive rewards by year three and that's what makes that's what makes his draft case so interesting if we talk about the concept of pre-drafting which steven i messaged you the one day i'm like what the hell is pre-drafting i had never <laughs> heard that phrase used it's brand at new to all. me this year too yeah i had never heard that used in my life and it's not like i'm just this guy who lives in my parents basement i've never been outside the house and i never talked to real basketball executives and scouts who work in the league or work in programs associated with the league. I've been around a little bit, Steven, and I've never heard anybody use that phrase before. So I was like, okay, what the hell does that mean? But when you actually explain it, that mm. makes sense. And Alex Fudge would 100% be that pre-draft type of candidate that you'd be looking for at the back end of the first round, somebody to sink developmental resources into, because if you do, the, the payoff could be absolutely massive. Yeah, and I think, too, when you're considering pre-draft, like when you asked me about it, I almost wanted to be like Ron Burgundy and be like, I believe that pre-draft was an old, old wooden ship used in the Civil War <laughs> era, right? But <laughs> but I think I would be astounded in a, in a very bad way. Maybe confounded is the right word to use here. If a team did not spend a second-round draft pick, you know, at worst on an Alex Fudge, like sign me up. And I think in, in this draft in particular, Nathan – 
where the talent level believe, let's just say here, 25 to 45, like that margin of, of talent, I don't think is very wide at all. Like a second round draft pick this season could, could change the fortune of, of a team moving forward because of how thin of a margin of talent level there is between like, say, 25 to 45. Disruptive, versatile defenders with size and length will always have a home in the NBA, especially where the game is going. So I will not root out. I'll not root Alex Fudge out for being a prospect in this draft class. If gun to my head, you had to make me put a top 45 together today, he's, he may very well be inside that top 45. I think he he is. If, if my point was correct earlier and I'm living up to my word that I flirted with potentially making him a top 30 guy, he by default kind of has to be in my top 45. I think it just depends on if he actually declares when we get closer to that point and if continuing to evaluate some of the other guys who I would have ahead of him right now. But he has one hell of an interesting case in this draft, certainly would next year. But, Stephen, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Again, for my audience out there, this is a dual-run podcast. This will be on this podcast feed as well as the Draft Capital podcast feed. So make sure you are definitely subscribed to both shows. But, Stephen, I'll give you the floor really quick. Plug everything that you're doing. Plug all your work because everything that you're doing. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed more by the day with what you're doing. You're, you're, a little, you're a little new to the game. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you're grinding and plugging away as hard as anybody else on Draft Twitter. And I can do nothing but give you the utmost amount of respect considering you guys at Off the Ball Network were incredibly kind to me when I was first starting out the show a little over a year ago. So I have to reciprocate the love in turn. And, and I, everything you're doing, man, you're, you're, you impress me more by the day. Well, man, that means a lot to me. And, and yeah, I, I'm pretty new to being like a, a draft-specific analysis. You know, I... I've had my own NBA centric podcast for the past couple seasons and I really wanted to kind of sink my teeth into the draft because off the ball network, you know, we've, we've added more and more talent and I, and I found a need in just year round draft analysis. And that's what I wanted to go for. I, I love a challenge and, you know, guys like you, I consider, you know, like big brothers in the draft community, guys who I look for, for advice and inspiration. I listen to you guys all the time, you and the rest of the, the team over at no ceilings, you guys do tremendous work. And um, I, I just appreciate you guys giving me, you know, just kind of welcome me with open, open arms. It, it means a lot. But, you know, if you want to follow me, I'm most active on Twitter. You can follow me there at Stephen G Hoops. That's Stephen with a P-H, the letter G, and then Hoops. Uh, you know, you can follow Draft Capital on all social media platforms at Draft Capital NBA. We have a podcast and we have some pretty significant guests coming up already, even though I'm young in the game. You know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of, you know, prominent figures in the draft community um, wanting to come on the show. And that means a lot to me. So go look up draft capital anywhere that you get your podcast. Um, I've undertaken a writing um, venture with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Maxwell Bombach, better known as bomb boards on Twitter, where we, we have a written segment called pick and roll where we pick five prospects and then we roll with our analysis. We don't always agree. We don't always disagree. We just kind of shoot you straight on where we're at in, in their analysis. We have videos, tweets, all of that fun stuff. And we and it's set up like a conversation, like Maxwell and I are across the table, kind of like how Nathan and I are doing here verbally. We do it in written form, and it's a lot of fun. And then if you want to check out any of my big boards, um, I'm going to be doing kind of written mock drafts as well. 
You can follow me at Stephen Gillespie. That's G-I-L-L-A-S-P-I-E dot substack dot com. And of course, I'm part of Off the Ball Network. You can go check out our substack there too at offtheballnetwork.substack.com. And Nathan, again, thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to having you on for 3.0 because I feel like that episode is going to be fire because you and I both were shaking things up, stepping away from that preseason expectations. We're going to be rewarding productivity. And I think that that's going to be probably the best episode that we're going to have at, at the time of its release. I couldn't agree more, my friend. And a big thank you as well to everybody out there listening to this episode of the podcast. If you aren't subscribed to this show, please consider doing so. Not, not just consider doing so. Damn it. Subscribe to the show. Do it. Do it. I, I, I pour my heart and soul into this draft content, and, and I can't thank everyone out there who has listened throughout the time that I've had this podcast enough for showing me the support. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper for plenty more draft discourse. I'm sure I'm going to be throwing out some some more tweets um, as, as we go through some of the other games this week. There's still some highlight games left on the schedule this week. And then stay tuned to everything we're doing at No Ceilings. If you aren't subscribed, subscribe to the Substack. No ceilings.substack.com. What the hell are you doing? We are giving you draft content every day, Monday through Friday. We're throwing something new at you. I'm giving you a column on Mondays. Corey Tulliba is giving you draft market uh, stock updates um, on, on some Tuesdays, or he has a unique column that comes out on Tuesdays. We do sleeper deep dives. We do Friday screener film sessions. Like, what more could you want in terms of diversified? Foreign relations, draft too, right? With, with uh, Rucker. Yeah, Rucker likes to pat himself on the back with those foreign <laughs> relations comments. But, uh, yeah, we, we do so much work over at No Ceilings. We want to be able to share with as many people as possible. So make sure you subscribe to that newsletter. Stay tuned. Next week, I'm not ready to make the announcements yet, but I have some massive guests in the pipelines for, for some shows next week so definitely stay tuned to this podcast the rest of the month you're gonna love what's coming but in the meantime thank you all for listening i hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week